Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And as you know, each week, twice a week, I bring you brand new cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Once a week, though, every Wednesday, I like to delve deep into the History Hit archive and pull out an episode that I think deserves some more attention. Now, last week, we brought you part one of the SAS in the Falklands. And it is 2022. It's 40 years since the start of that conflict. So it only makes sense to bring you part two. This episode was originally recorded by Dan Snow and it's with Cedric Delves, Sir Cedric Delves, the man who commanded D Squadron 22 SAS and Danny West who was 2nd in command during the Falklands War you're going to hear incredible stories of raging seas, inhospitable glaciers, hurricane force winds helicopter crashes and SAS raids behind enemy lines now do remember to pop along wherever you get your podcasts and drop us a five-star review. You can now do that on Spotify as well. It takes one click and it really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history. But now, here is Dan Snow, Cedric Delves and Danny West on the SAS in the Falklands. Enjoy. So you ended up going into the administrative centre uh, as well? Yes. We, we put together what force we could, and it's primarily uh, D Squadron, 22 SAS, less one troop because they're in Stromness, uh, the Marine detachments from the ships, you know, a few from yeah, half a dozen or so from each, and we cobbled together a force, but nevertheless its, it's core is the squadron, and um, we go in. On Humphrey? Uh, we've got Humphrey's helicopters. We've got Brilliant's helicopters now, and I can't remember what the total lift of that is. It, we, I think we can gather about 20 at a time with a turnaround of about 20 minutes. So it could it's going to take an hour or so to get everybody ashore. Um, but we we throw them in and we win. And, and, and do you... Feet on the ground, and, and how how close uh, to the enemy? I mean, if, if they they know you're there, do you just land on top of them, or, or do you land um, off and then and then advanced contact on foot? Well, you advance the contact on foot, but you're quite a distance away at this yeah. stage. What what are you four miles? It'd be something like that. Yes, there's a there's a flat area, a place called Hesseslet, to the south of. 
Grevirken, and we land there. And in between the t- the uh, they're out of Kierhead, but Point and Grevirken. In between there, there's a mountain, and uh, whoever holds that mountain is going to win. And we didn't know whether they held it, or we well, we just knew we had to get on it. So there's a bit of a race to get up there. And then we they they weren't holding it. And there's a story attached to that as well. We sort of dash up, dash away. Um, and the Navy had told me the uh, submarine's unfinished business. You know, if you get an opportunity, kill it. <laughs> I was like, how do we do that? <laughs> With a handy tank missile good enough, this, that'll do fine. I said, where exactly? You know, where the fin meets the hull. You mean the conning tower? I said, yes, that's what I said, the fin. Where the fin is the, <laughs> the, uh, the hull. Put it in there, the ops room is underneath that. And uh, anyway, I, we're dashing away. Get to this hill. Look down, and there it is, this submarine, looking a bit like a black and sinister, like a U-boat, you know, tied up along the Great Vic, and I took over my shoulder, and there's Nobby Clark coming up the hill, a drawer Nobby works in the stores. Um, getting, getting on in soldiering years with Nobby, carrying a missile on the land. And I waved Nobby over, you see. I said, Nobby, do you know how to use that? And he said, yeah. I said, well, put it into that submarine. And uh, he's not doing it fast enough. I'm urging him along. Mm-hmm. And I get this, boss, boss. And I said, not now. <laughs> We're busy. Can't you see? And I urged, urged um, Daryl Nobby on. And he said, where exactly do you want it, boss? And I told him, and I thought he was impressed by that because he honestly knew what he was doing. And then I got this really more insistent, boss, boss, stop. And I turned around and uh, I said, well, what the hell is it? He said, they surrendered. <laughs> <laughs> And then I looked up, having been fixated by the submarine, there were white cloths everywhere. <laughs> they had surrendered. So, so what, had, what had precipitated that surrender? The Royal Navy. And by the way, I'm very glad, as a big fan of the senior service, I think I've found, an, I think I've found a convert here, yes. an army man that's a big fan of the, uh, the, the, um, the Royal Navy. Yeah, we, we, we liked them at the time, I think. We admired them at the time, but it wasn't until I started writing the book that I realised the depth of affection. They were, if you want to do stuff with water, turn to the Navy. They're really, really good, you know. That's what they do best. Mm. Yeah. And, and so they, the Argentinians had surrendered um, thanks to the, the, show, the show of force, effectively. Yeah, the, the Navy had you know, done for their best hope. You know, this submarine was meant to sort of stop us in our tracks out at sea, I guess. Um, that had been defeated. And then Antrim is, he got a couple of guns in Plymouth, you know, formed a gun line and fired into, um, not onto the enemy, um, but to one side of them to demonstrate. Well, this had been going on throughout the attack. Yeah. They, I think you'd probably given them the spot to put the, put the rounds down. And as they're looking uh, in the direction of, of where we're coming from, the rounds were landing about a kilometre away to their right onto a feature, but it was clear to them that the point could be shifted at any time to come down directly on them. But the reason that was done was to save Argentinian lives, unnecessary Argentinian um, lives being lost. It reminds me, actually, that, you know, this was a hasty attack and um, we sort of uh, put together this thing and, and it was always going to be an advanced contact and then we sort of get to them and then 
if you met anybody who'd try and deal with it from a distance. We had sort of missiles that could do without, we had guns that could do that without having to close with them particularly. You, don't, you, know, we, you know, we're SAS, we didn't particularly want to charge in there like a parachute battalion with bayonets fixed, or rather not. Thank you very much. Um, there are other ways of doing these things. But um, I, I gave out a set of, a quick, quick set of grubby orders. And uh, Danny, Danny says, Sorry, he says, do you mind if I have a word? I said, yeah, help yourself. This is the, with the command team. And he said, look, um, just remind you that, you know, the soldiers like us, they've got families like us. Um, you know, you might have to use force, that sort of thing. Um, but essentially you're saying use it proportionately. Mm-hmm. And that is not the you know, common view of the SES. You know, I'd like to stress that. We're not a bunch of bloody thugs, brutal thugs. Um, you know, I'm sure but- in, in fairness, the merry men didn't need to be reminded of that. It's just that in my heart of hearts, I thought there might have been one or two there, never been in this sort of situation before, you know, with the force of forward movement, you know, may not notice a white flag going up or <clears throat> maybe a bit careless with a round or two. But it was just, you know, focusing them that um, for, fortunately um, there was nobody killed in South Georgia except for that sad guy, in, which was... It was an accident, actually. There was a sailor killed on the submarine. Yeah, an Argentinian sailor killed on the submarine. But apart from that, I don't think anybody was even badly wounded. Uh, one wounded, yeah. Uh, an Argentinian, very courageously. I mean, the the um, it was from on the submarine. The uh, the submarine was attacked, and uh, the reason why they were firing, or they could lay their hands on the helicopters, they used GPM uh, machine guns and rifles and anything is to keep people off the fin so it would have to navigate itself by the periscope and get back in. And But the captain of the um, submarine, who turned out to be, again, another decent, highly civilised sort of boat, um, sent a sailor up to, with, a, with a machine gun to try and you know, get, get these bloody helicopters off them so he could sort of navigate in. And unfortunately, he lost a leg when a missile went through and took his leg off. But those were the only injuries, mercifully. And we were pleased about that. Mm. So you had... You had a win under your belt. You had a success under your belt. And, and how had that operation convinced you that operating in the Falklands archipelago would be similar, similar and pretty a bit more challenging than perhaps you thought on, on the trip down? I don't think we had a view of that at the time because, you know, it was a case of going and have a look and, and see. But I think certainly the weather was an awful lot better in the, in the Falklands and there were more options because... You know, in, in in South Georgia, you just had Gripvik and Stromness, Leith. Those those were your three options, and there was no way that you could come. There was a, a, a an angle of about 90 degrees that you could approach them from, whereas in the Falklands, of course, you'd got 360 degrees. We could come from any direction, and as we proved, people could live out there. There's no way people could have lived in South Georgia. I mean, some, some guys were there for, for over a month, you know, just living out their Bergens, and in in the fall in the Falkland Islands, yes, but and not washing for a month either. I, I didn't want to pick them up actually. <laughs> right, so we've done South Georgia. Let's move on to the Falklands proper. What next? Well, what next is we're uh, we're ordered um, out of South Georgia quickly. We get on brilliant, and we rejoin the task force proper. Uh, instructed to get on Hermes, which is the flagship aircraft carrier, um, where we find G Squadron already on on Hermes, 
commanded by Ewan Houston. Ewan's got a good relationship going with the um, the Admiral. And it's one of our principles that we, we get as close to the top man as possible. And he's done that perfectly. So he's got the squadron on board, his squadron on board. He's right in the uh, right alongside the Admiral. And they've got the the um, advanced force operation um, going, um, putting in reconnaissance ashore uh, onto all the major settlements, all the major areas where they're likely to be Argentinians in order to inform the campaign level plan. So, so yeah, so just for anyone listening, people might think of the SAS as storming around buildings, killing and, and neutralizing. Actually, a, a big part of your job here was just providing intelligence, sitting outside all the settlements, working out who was there, how many of them, what they were armed with. In probably probably the more important type of work, you know, it's less spectacular, um, and that's yeah, it's one of our one of our major roles, and they and they're doing that, and they're beginning to beginning to put patrols ashore. In addition to that, there is SBS on board, Hermes, and they are going ashore at a greater frequency, which actually worries G a bit, um, to look at beaches uh, because we will need somewhere to land eventually. So they're doing the beach reconnaissance. And then that leaves uh, D uh, back from South Georgia. Um, for what? Uh, well, the for what is, so it's an actual division of labor. Um, we will start looking at the direction, direct actions. We'll, we'll start looking for things to break. Um, but it's not a matter of just finding things to break. What you're trying to find is that thing that will be bigger than the sum of its broken parts. Yeah, um, there caused some dismay psychologically, uh, and obviously some physical hurt. So you start looking for that type of targets, and uh, well, uh, you know, your thoughts turn to things like communication, nose, that sort of stuff. Um, you even think in terms of maybe getting at their higher leadership or something. You know, Comrade Creeper, it wasn't his name. The SOE SOE snatched some fellow from. Crete in the 1940s, that type of thing. You know, looking for looking for a target. You know, the squadron strikes is such and such. So I didn't want it to be anything bigger than about 60 or 70 people on the ground we were going up against, but something we could, you know, hurt badly if not destroyed completely, which would have this great impact. So we started looking around and found um, this this target, which <laughs> on Pebble Island, and um, Cedric had some difficulty at first to get permission to go ashore yeah. because obviously it tied up an awful lot of um, naval assets. And uh, what was on Pebble Island? So we started looking around and uh, in the sequence of things, and, and there's not a lot of interest. Mm. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but I worry that actually it's because of what we did down in South Georgia. It caused more trouble than, um, than otherwise. So I thought maybe a little bit of that in play. And I think perhaps there was. You know, they, you could do without that complication. You're going to put SF ashore, but because you really have to, you're going to have to find out where the enemy is. But do you really need to do a raid when you've got sea areas and other things and ships with guns and perhaps we do it like that? Um, so, I, you know, I've got my doubts. <laughs> um, anyway, we don't get very far with our proposals. But but we find Pebble Island. Pebble Island's um, something's going on there. Uh, you know, it looks like there's some Marines there and there's some others there, some engineers there. And so we put together a proposal for the Admiral to go, first of all, to have a look, and then perhaps to go and destroy whatever it is or at least attack it. He's not interested, not remotely. And then, uh, a little while later, a Sea Harrier flies past um, Pebble and thinks it's been painted, as they call it, has been picked up by a radar. 
his attitude starts to change. Mike Rose also, I've told Mike Rose if he can't get anywhere with the Admiral without direct action ideas. Uh, Mike Rose, back in the other one, takes out Jane's book of radars or something and finds what the, the Argentinians might have or might not have and um, suggests that there's a radar of this type, very likely, uh, to be on Pebble Island. What we don't know, I mean, he does, but I don't, is that Pebble Island's in a bad place for San Carlos. It sort of, you know, covers the approaches to. The Admiral now is very interested. Because San Carlos is, is a large bay, which the Admiral would have known that he was, that, that's where they were preparing to land the main amphibious force on East Falkland. That is correct. It is becoming the favoured landing spot. And Pebble Island covers its approaches. And um, anyway, again, to abbreviate this story, the Admiral has a meeting work out how to deal with this radar and that sort of thing, and is thinking more about sea harriers and gunships and that sort of stuff. Ewan pipes up and says, uh, well, why didn't you use us? And he gets interested, you know. Um, I, d- I don't... Re- Ewan does. Ewan, Ewan. Ewan being the commander of G-Squadron. And I've, I've told Ewan previously, you know, nobody talks direct action but me. You know, and I'm only, only me who talks on business of my squadron, not, not you, Ewan. But Ewan's in this meeting. I just thought it was a routine meeting. I didn't realize it was a targeting meeting. Otherwise, I would have been there. Anyway, and, they, and, and the Admiral gets very interested and said, yes, um, when can you do it? And thinking you'd say tomorrow night or something or the day after tomorrow. And Ewan says, mm, 10 days. <laughs> well, you know, in normal run of things, it might have taken that long. Um, and so it's not on. He's got to think about other things. And Ewan eventually finds me shortly afterwards and tell, tells me I'm, I'm mortified and said, get me into the Admiral now. And we both go off and find the Admiral and I sort of put on my best sort of beady look and Woodward's got a really steely look, I can tell you. And uh, he gives me a steely look back and I said, Admiral, we'll do it for you day after tomorrow. Um, we're, we're ready. And he said, okay, you can have it. And that's how the Pebble Island raid comes. And, and so to, uh, talk me through the raid. Well, a, a reconnaissance patrol went went forward, and um, it has to be said that the odds were against them, and there were dangers down there that they didn't appreciate. For instance, there was a tidal race that they had to overcome because you couldn't land on top of Pebble Island because you would have shown up the sound or something, you know, you would have given your your plan away. So they landed um, off Pebble Island on uh, West Falkland on the west side of West Falkland. And then they had to carry their canoes and all their equipment to a spot where they could get into the water, time that tidal race, get across the tidal race, and then find a place which was fairly close to the settlement as a, a firm base, and then put out OPs, and, and then have people um, watching in the other direction. And there was only... How many of them were, were there altogether? Nine. Throughout twelve, so they had people watching, watching to the rear. They had people watching the um, the, the village and the airfield, and um, they got Cedric got the signal, which made us all jump for joy. He said, 11 aircraft, believe real." <laughs> yeah, yeah, they could have been cardboard, cardboard cuttings or something, but he, he believed real, and he said, "Squadron should come in tonight," and. And so we did. <laughs> the following night. Was it? Yeah, it was too sharp to do it that night. Yeah. And so we laid it on the uh, following night. As ever, the uh, the weather takes a turn for the worse and 
abbreviate a long story. We everything we lose time. Everything's delayed. We arrive late, and I recall uh, we we did they did the war on Zulu time, as they call it, general Greenwich Mean Time. But for the sake of this local time, dawn was sometime around about eight o'clock. I seem to remember. Might have been a bit later. And uh, I said, whatever you're doing, everybody, at seven o'clock, you're to be back at the squadron RV just off the airstrip so we can extract and go back home, go back out to mother. Um, whatever you're doing, seven o'clock, that's it. Well, we arrived down there around about seven o'clock. <laughs> so uh, I said, Ted, Ted Inshaw. With a four to five hour march ahead of us. No, no, that, no. We arrived at seven. That was, that was including the market. Yeah, no. We actually got to the edge of the airfield at yeah. seven. Time to go home. I said, "Ted, you can have ten minutes. Mm-hmm. You can go up on the airfield and have ten minutes." And he said he needed longer. I said, "Only oh, got ten minutes." Um, could I kept a few minutes to myself? Actually, I knew they wouldn't. They would dis- be disobedient, and um, they went off and destroyed the aircraft. I wouldn't come back. The airplanes. So that's a, a proper old um, a proper old raid in the in the spirit of the long range desert group and the early the early men of the SES. I mean, go go and find airfields and and smash up what you find on it. Um, were the enemy expecting you? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Goodness knows what they were doing watching the telly. I think <laughs> they heard all this noise. Well, of course, we announced their arrival because of the naval gunfire which was creeping down the, the airfield. Well, that must have given them a clue. But at this stage, they didn't realise there were feet on the ground. They thought they were being shelled from ships. And I, I'm not sure at what stage would they have twigged it. Oh, I suppose when the aeroplane started blowing up and going on fire. You know, somebody went, somebody <laughs> And they were, they were Argentinian, oh, God love them, I'm sure they had to say something, but they were Argent, Argentinian reports saying that they had laid... Um, A-type ambushes and they'd got grenade necklaces round the airfield and there was no such thing, you know. If, if, and it's a good job there was no such thing because, you know, we had a straight walk in and a straight walk out again. And is the how do you prioritise aircraft versus defenders? I mean, do you, is, it, is, it, is it not tempting to try and find the defenders, neutralise them and then block the aircraft? Do you just start on the plane? You, t- you take what you've got, you know, you, you, whatever, whatever's nearest, easiest, take that. Because bear in mind, we're on our back foot at this stage. You know, we're pushed for time. We Things, as always, were going wrong. But it has to be said, and that we did have it in mind that perhaps we could harm the pilots in such a way that they wouldn't be able to fly aeroplanes, even capture them, I suppose. We could have got them by the scruff of the neck and dragged them away if we'd found them, but that was going to take time. Um, So the aeroplanes were there, and the aeroplanes were very, um, very professionally destroyed. You know, they weren't coming back. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everyone, from Thomas Cromwell to Oliver Cromwell, from Catherine Howard to Catherine de' Medici, from the first Russian Tsar to the last Ming Emperor. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And did the defenders try and organize themselves and counterattack them? I don't think there were any. They, you know, they, they would claim there were defenders. I, I'm not sure there were. They did blow up the airstrip. They had reserved demolitions on the airstrip. Where the airstrip crossed, mainly on there. And I think it, we, we, we didn't realise what had happened. We thought it might have been our own naval gunfire or something at first. But then, of course, we saw the craters. And there were a couple of lads who were close to where these craters were, or, or where these reserve demolitions were blown. They, they were trying to destroy the airfield because they thought perhaps we were stealing the aeroplanes. Perhaps they were thinking that we might want to land something. And it was... Um, they, they, they did manage to destroy the airfield and a couple of our lads were injured when the explosives went off. But um, otherwise, we didn't, see a, we didn't see a great deal from, from the enemy. They did, they did make some token attempt at shooting at us, but... I don't think any of us are very clear on the nature of the defences there. There's, um, there was someone who managed the, uh, the Pebble Island subsequently after the war. I, I went out to visit him, and uh, he was very excited by my visit and said, you must show me exactly where you are. And I said, well, we came through that way, I think, and I'm not really sure. And he said, you must be sure. And I, I think he was... Uh, he said, but there are Argentinians all over this. And he had had Argentinian veterans visit and show him where the where their trenches were. And there was evidence that there were trenches, but where they went in afterwards... Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I'm saying they were dug retrospectively. You know, had we known there was going to be a, a raid, we'd have put our trenches here. So, and then I think they probably sold that story to their commanders that they had them, and we were just lucky to get through. Although most people reported no, no enemy resistance apart from the uh, demolition charge. The old, the old person did say there was some trace that went across and maybe, maybe there were some positions. But it's domed um, Pebble Island and you've only got to be a little bit over that dome and you won't, you won't see one another all night. You know? So a big success on Pebble Island. Yeah. How did that affect, the, well, how did that affect what you were going to do next? Um, well, and also... Say, so how does it affect, affect the task, task force, maybe? The task force, surely before that, had lost Sheffield, and there was a bit 
shocking. There'd been an unrelenting run of success for us. You know, Belgrano, South Georgia, Belgrano, that sort of stuff. Um, and then um, then Sheffield. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't rally on Julie, but I think it, you know, had an impact. Then Pebble Island, another success. It's sort of, we like to think it reestablishes the run of successes. If, if, so it actually did our spirits a lot of good. How how much it dented the Argentinians, I, I don't know, but it couldn't have been good. <laughs> so. Good. So that, that, that's affected the... Um, how did it affect the campaign? But what about in terms of your ambition? What you how how the how the admiral thought he could use you guys? Well, you know the you know, things sort of move on, and, and it's not long after that to the rest of the task force marries up, and we're getting close now to putting uh, forces ashore. Uh, so the amphibious force um, marries up with the the uh, the air, the air group. Um, so we're all coming together, and the next obvious thing is going to be the landings. And there's going to be a need for some shuffling around. I mean, for example, uh, I think it's certainly two, it might even be three of the battle groups that come down on Canberra, and Canberra is not going to go into San Carlos. So there's a matter of cross-decking, uh, spreading people around the amphibious shippings. We're also told to come off uh, Hermes, because we're going to go ashore as well. Um, our task, for the, Mike Rose has come down to brief us on this, our task in on the landing on the night of the landing is to go down the Darwin Goose Green area and be diverting, make noise and confusion, create confusion. So that's our role. So we're gonna we're gonna do our crossover and we're trying to get on Intrepid. Which we do. And um I'm sort of locking up a set of orders for the night, that sort of thing on Hermes and da- Danny's gone off to see how the cross deck is going is going well enough. Comes back to me and said, "Look, sir, let's let's cross deck now. I always leave it to the last minute. Don't cross deck it. It's such a pain in the ass." I actually found a wasp helicopter that was refueling, and I said to the guy, "I said, could you take my mate and I across to Intrepid?" And he said, "Sure thing." He said, "Just let me do my paper." I said, "We're not quite ready yet. Give us ten minutes. We're back here in ten minutes, and I come back and found you sort of." Not fast asleep, but probably fairly near. <laughs> Just having a having a wee rest. I said, "Come on, Cedric." I said, "We got to get over to that other ship." I said, "There's nothing we can do here, but there's probably plenty we can do over there." Which is probably the reason that it would have been a good idea to stay back. But anyway, we fortunately we. I mean, I was reluctant, but I think you mentioned that we could get a beer or something, yeah. and then I thought, "Yeah, all right, I'm, I'll make the move." Um, which we do. So we get on to Intrepid and we find it absolutely packed with paratroopers and all sorts, three paras on board and that sort of stuff. And somehow Graham Cook, who's the the, uh, the man who gone across the, the uh, CQMS, yeah, has managed to get me a bloody ensuite bedroom. I mean, it's extraordinary. I've even got a, a bath. Um, I don't know. He you know, never let me down there, Graham. He always found me. I don't know what he was pumping up my sort of rank or something. But anyway, I got this. Cedric would find about half a dozen of the troops would come and share his basher with them. Well, I, you know, I got a soft spot for paratroopers, and there was this sort of machine gun crew outside. So I told them, they invited them in, they could share my basher, provided they left the bed for me. And anyway, so I went off to go and find this beer, um, found Danny in the uh, the boardroom, and we were having a beer, actually. And it was dark by then, and um, we heard there was a pipe, um, and someone said there's a helicopter gone down. And it wasn't unusual, you know, the helicopters were always dropping into the sea, particularly the uh, anti-submarine ones, they, you know, they would just have got a burble or something, they would drop in the sea. And so it wasn't unusual, it happened a number of times, I didn't pay it much float, attention. It float as well when it yeah. lands on the sea, and that's what I thought had happened. Yeah. And what was going through my mind was that, you know, Lawrence will be like a bear with a sore head, you know, coming on board all wet. Yeah, I didn't mean get that far. 
I didn't even think that far. I didn't think of anything about it. You know, I just continued with that beer, and and, uh, and that naval officer came up. It turned out to be Roger Edwards, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, a naval officer came up, and he, he said, "I think it's yours." And even then, it didn't really sort of it didn't sort of didn't register that much. He said, uh, "Come this way," and we went up. He took me up to the. Um, did you come as well? Yeah, up to the bridge. And they confirmed it was ours, and that Brilliant was on the scene, ordered boats away, and they're doing what they could to pick up survivors. Only then that I realised the the enormity of the uh, the event. And we lost. We were, yeah, we were we were poleaxed. I was I was I had all the number uh, all the names down on the left hand side of this clipboard like that, and they were appearing. You know, every few minutes somebody'd say they'd got so and so, and another ship had got so and so, and it ended up that I had seven names down this side, and twenty-one names down this side, and I went down, I went down into the where our sleeping quarters there, and I bumped into Ted Inshaw, and he said, "What's the score?" And I said, "If they're on the left, they're dead." And it was as simple as that. And then I went into the heads and I I wept, you know, I, for about two minutes, you know, I just, and then I pulled myself together and come up and joined Cedric. And um, and it was, it was, you know, I've never, ever felt like that, ever. You know, it was just, we were having breakfast with these guys that morning. You know, and, and you know, and they were all good friends. We knew them very well. We knew their families and everything. And the thing is, you know, we had to concentrate on our next task. And this, and the, yeah, and that, yes, you're right. You're right there, you're just just as well. Anyway, you gave them a set of orders, more or, or Mike Rose came, came on board and gave it. Mike Rose came across to see how we were. Uh, had a word, we showed him that we would crack on and that sort of stuff. And uh, then he went away. And we did we did just that. The following morning, God, we'd had a, a debate, Danny and I, over how to you know manage this. We were going to do these 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 diversions that coming evening. Had to give a set of orders. There were two broad structural uh, options facing us. Yeah, the most of the casualties had come from well, no, they were, they were from across the piece, but uh, there was a concentration on the mounted troop. The mounted troop was a special troop that ceased to exist. Um, you know, they were down to a handful, and so you either took that handful and spread them around the other three troops, and carry on with three troops, or you took from the other three troops and power piled them into the much reduced mountain troop. We opted for the the, the 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 last of those, because at least it might look as though we're still well, we're still four troops, mm-hmm. and it might have a balance. sort of air of normality mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, and indeed balance. That's why. Uh, so that's what we did. So we had, we gave a set of orders and asked the um, troops to get together to do just that. Let squadron headquarters know where where the where the names had gone, so we make sure we knew where people were. Um, as I say, gave out the set of orders for that evening, and that that evening we were we were on the mainland. Mm. We were uh, we were down Darwin's Green. I may say something about that. I don't know if you remember, but because we've been at sea for so long, yes. we were all doing this business. You know, first of all, we were doing it in opposite of this business, this being radio. I suppose you don't know what this business is. This business is swaying backwards and forwards, as we had been doing on board the ship. And at first we were doing it um, out of phase with each other, but eventually we, 
we were we were in phase, and that went on for hours. You know, just you know, what? Yeah, a very strange, very strange sensation. They stay where you put them. <laughs> and then once you were ashore, um, were you sort of? Did you feel that you were subsumed by the rest of the, the rest of the uh, task force? Once you're ashore, did you feel that you were sort of subsumed in that effort? Uh, the, the brigades that went ashore there, or did you still feel you were able to craft your own separate role? Yeah, it's a it's a really astute question. It's a good question. Uh, special forces are accustomed to operating, you know, out there or along there, and that sort of thing, more or less on your own. Uh, increasingly, we found ourselves hard up against the conventional force, the graceful land forces, and it became, and certainly by the time we get down to um, Stanley and we're running out of room, um, that's that's causing. Um, a certain amount of conflict between us, you know. We, yeah, we're we're in, we're getting in one another's way. Um, to be to be absolutely frank about it, and it did cause um, a certain amount of tension. I suppose the takeaway from that is that you know there comes a point when the SF must stand to one side, and you let the others get on with it. But um, and we're coming on, you know, rapidly now to the last night with a with a fair amount in between. We simply could not stand to one side. I mean, how could we do that? And we still had force we we still have people we still have weaponry we still have stuff to bring to bear on this thing um we should be contributing right up to the last minute um uh, which we did but it has to be said we were probably complicated people's lives a little are we talking wireless ridge on on, on the last night we we are uh so we've been out on the west doing what you might argue would be strategic defense because there's some suggestion the Argentinians are going to reinforce the West to improve their bargaining position. And we've been we've been addressing that on behalf of that. But it becomes apparent that that is no longer a, a risk and we're keen to sort of move back to Stanley. Well, we, we had a force there overlooking um, Port Howard and um, there were four-man patrol, two forward, two back, and... Sadly, the enemy, they didn't know they were there, but it was a routine patrol and there was a firefight ensued and John Hamilton sadly was killed and Roy von Zika was, um, was captured and spent a few days, week, yeah, in, in captivity. Was it 10 days? Yeah. So he was in captivity for 10 days and did very well, by the way, in, in captivity, so much so that um, when he was released at the end, the Argentinians applauded him. As he, when they were, yeah, well, just for his, um, for his conduct under capture. Can I also register this, that they, um, they buried John Hamilton with full military honours in the uh, cemetery. But going, turning back to the last night, so, you know, we're, we want to do our bit, and um, our bit was really defined... <laughs> Not by us. Anyway, I won't go there. And we were going to do a, yet another diversion um, into the back end of Stanley to try and draw attention away from two para on Wilderish. And we're very, we're very happy to do things at two para. You know, we we're quite fond of two para. They've done Darwin Goose Green, and they deserve all the help they can get. And we're close to the paras anyway, so we have no difficulty with doing that. But it's a classic example where, um, as I said right at the beginning of this. You know, there's a way a special forces operate, and it takes a bit of time to lay on our operation. You need to know what you're going up here. You have to achieve that precision and that surprise, not in an, oh, gosh, what's that sense, but they simply do not react because they can't react because you're completely surprised. You have to achieve those things because of their small numbers. None of that is going to obtain 
Um, we're laying, we arrive at Moral Heights, which is just off where we we're going to, to attack um, one night, and we're going to do it the following night. There's no opportunity to do the necessary reconnaissance during the day where it's forward sloped into standing. So we simply lay this thing on. Anyway, abbreviate story, we sort of run into a lot of trouble, don't we? <laughs> we were very, fortunate, very fortunate to escape with um, two men wounded, lightly wounded, but um, wounded just the same. And it could have been disastrous. I mean, Ted Inshaw's whole patrol there could have been wiped out easily enough. Well, the background to Mount Kent is that um, the uh, task force comes into San Carlos and actually there's an operational pause, which is most unusual. I mean, you put operational pauses in later, so we're sort of hanging around. Can't go into, you know, it's not enough time to sort of go into the whys and the wherefores of that. But I think people are getting impatient. And my reason, who's particularly sort of not one for hanging around, um, orders the squadron forward to Mount Kent. He sees Mount Kent as the key ground, but he's not he's not unique in this. I mean all the planners see Mount Kent as the is the as the key ground to the defence of um Stanley. It's a bit like Monte Casino of the Falklands. Whoever is on top of that is going to be dominating the area. And they haven't they haven't done anything about it. So I'm ordered up there to sort of take the squadron up there um with the intention of conducting raids from that area. Um, into the Stanley area and cause and using guerrilla operations, I think it's described. But in the conversation, it's quite clear that actually, although that's the that's the instruction, that's the mission to go up into that area and conduct raids, the real preoccupation are twofold. One is to actually attempt to suck the brigade forward out of out of San Carlos to encourage it forward. Second, um, that it makes quite clear that. Mount Kent's the key ground, so I'm I'm actually conflicted over what what to do, do raise or take ground. I don't know how to suck a brigade forward, but it might be that the example of that era. Um, so I, I'm really not quite sure what to do. We but we come up with a wheeze, well, a, you know, a way of going about this that we might be able to occupy this piece of ground here, which will enable us to dominate without actually going on to Mount Kent and conduct a race from there, and that and that's what emerges. And over the con- over the period of time, you manage to get the rest of the squadron in. It takes a couple of days to do that, and eventually the Argentinians start taking notice of the area for one reason or another. I think they start their own patrol programs that dominate the area, and we see off a number of patrols. Mm-hmm. And again, to abbreviate the story, we've you know we've seen off a number of patrols. We manage to get the commandos up. They get up onto the hill, and it turns out to be a very significant contribution to the war is it, it, it genuinely of an operational level significance although it's not particularly dramatic for us um nevertheless we've dramatic we've, enough insofar as i think i think how many firefights did we actually have on on that position yeah. four or five yeah yes yeah. i mean that's 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 quite significant yeah, as well. yeah. yeah so there are some tactical events uh, and uh, you know, we 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 dominate them and we we really ruin their patrol program um, they maybe are sort of making too light of it but it, it is operationally significant what we've i think uh, we managed, managed managed to do is is help a commando onto that hill from which they they can look all the way into stanley you know once you're on mount kent you're dominating everything in front you still have to you still have to unpick those hills and but you know the guns the guns had um, were dominating the whole ground between mount kent and stanley you could have could have they could have taken out any target there reasonably easily if they had the amount of ammunition that they would normally be used to 
it's the observation from Mount Kandahar. I think it's going to be, it was only a relatively small number of guns we had with us up there, but you can observe it all. So you can direct other guns, naval guns, air. You just see it all. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a really significant move. It still required the big battalions that are called the battle groups to take a series of hills and unpick it. And the problem for the commander, and, and, and the principal commander really is Julian Thomas, who's bloody brilliant. Um, and we all recognize him as being the boss, although actually, ironically, he's not. He's the commander of three commander brigade, but we always recognize him as being it. Um, has this complicated business of unpicking these, these hills. And he's going to come at it in a way which is very difficult to disguise. You can only do it in a certain there are a certain number of orders where you're ordered, and, and there's a natural order to it. And he, he knows this. To obscure what is actually a pretty obvious you know, course of events that's about to occur. And he empowers his brigade commander, his sorry, his battle group commanders to do this. And they take on these battles, each in their individual way. And actually, that is, that is where the confusion on the, en the enemy is, is achieved. The enemy are confused by the skill of the troops and their commanders, the COs, at that tactical level. And that that doesn't want to be overlooked in this. And they, they conduct it brilliantly, all involved, absolutely brilliantly. Your war finishes? Oh, well, no, we are, are in not quite the way we would want it. We, but, watched, uh, we, watched, we watched the surrender. We were, we were there, you know, at the end. We watched them coming forward with white flags and walking into Stanley. And at that stage, um, Mike Rose came and visited us in a helicopter I gave him a Union Jack, which I'd been carrying with me since the beginning, and he flew down and put that Union Jack in Government House in Stanley. Sometime later, other people came out and thought, Who put that and, they, and they took it down and put their own up. I yeah, the, I suspect the Argentinians took it down whilst we weren't looking at us, I just imagine. But anyway. And when you saw those white flags, what did that... What were your, were your thoughts on the, your mates who didn't make it? Was it on victory? Was it a happy moment? Anticlimactical, I think. Yeah, I, I, I thought, you know, we were all, we, there might have been another stage yet to go. But no, it was, it, it was over. That's it. It, it, was, it was just a quiet moment. It was nice to stand upright in broad daylight and we stood on the roof. There was no cheering, no backslapping, no all that sort of stuff. We just sort of quietly looked down and there was this mass of humanity flowing round through Stanley. And it's quite a moment. And then, well, I don't know how it affected you, but, you know, th then you started to notice that there were people missing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lawrence wasn't there with his bloody roller. He always had, he had rollos, always had rollos, didn't he? Um, he wasn't there. And that's when you noticed you had lost people. Then we went home. To another campaign that we can't talk about on this podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. The book is Across an Angry Sea, the SAS in the Falklands War by Lieutenant General Sir Cedric Dowles. Go and buy it, everybody. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.